Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, panelists Matthew Burroughs, Samantha Vinograd, Earl Anthony Wayne, and Aaron McPike discuss geopolitical and technological trends to present five alternative futures based on how well global actors may respond, react, and adapt to growing uncertainty and change. The event took place on September 22, 2016. Good morning and welcome. I'm Fred Kemp, I'm President and CEO of the Atlantic Council, and thank you for uh, joining us today for the launch of this uh, truly significant report. Uh, my guess is that this report will have the sort of traction that the National Intelligence Council's 2030-2025 reports has had before it, uh, not least because uh, it's the same author. Uh, uh, but this time, he can say whatever he wants. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, at the Atlantic Council transformed here, transported here, uh, we are uh, distributing now Global Risks 2035, so not Global Trends 2035, but Global Risks 2035, Search for a New Normal by our own Matthew Burroughs, uh, Director uh, of the Strategic Foresight Initiative in the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Uh, I was sitting with one of the major foundations uh, yesterday in New York, uh, uh, leader of which just loves Matt's work and Matt's thinking. I say, yeah, sometimes I just go down to his office and sit down and say, Turkey. And 15 minutes later, I know everything I need to know about Turkey. Pakistan, China, Russia. And so this is a person who has a deep knowledge and can put these sorts of sinews and connections together as well as any thinker on um, uh, strategic trends that I know about. It's a continuation of the work they began while writing the seminal Global Trends reports at the NIC. Uh, but while the last NIC report four years ago was marked by its relative optimism, it got a lot of us buzzing about individual empowerment, the rise of the global middle class, Four years later, Global Risk paints a far less certain future, uh, focused on the rising danger of great power conflict, uh, focusing on the fracturing uh, of the global order uh, and the global system, and also fo uh, focusing on the internal framing of political, social, and economic fabric of practically all states. But for me, I look at it primarily um, uh, as a risk right now in the West, uh, and really among the countries that established this global system to start with. Matt will outline the main found findings in his report, followed by a panel that I hope will then drill down on uh, the thinking in this uh, Magritte cover um, global risks volume, which you'll be able to pick up outside. Joining him on, so on stage will be Samantha Vinograd, a Millennium Leadership Fellow with the Council, um, who has a very impressive uh, background as a public policy strategic communications uh, professional, uh, beginning her career in Baghdad working for the U.S. Department of Treasury and serving on President Obama's National Security Council as Director for Iraq, Director for International Economics, and Senior Advisor and National Security Advisor. 
Uh, Ambassador Tony Wayne will join her, former U.S. Ambassador to Mexico and Argentina, and really one of the finest diplomats of his generation, and not a bad first baseman. I've seen him play uh, softball as well in Brussels. And then Erin Pike, who many of you may know from her days as a correspondent from CNN, is now Director of Communications uh, at 1776, a startup, a global startup incubator, and she'll moderate. Um, let me just quote uh, uh, one line that I think will get a lot of traction in this report, and that is uh, Matt writing, and I quote, the post-Cold War security order has broken down and the consequences flowing, flowing from that are immense, potentially threatening globalization. Um, this discussion is all the more important, timely coming in the as we enter the final 47 days of our political process, and I think it's next Monday's first presidential debate, uh, I would hope that both presidential candidates would uh, read this report closely and that their moderator next Monday might ask them in quite specific terms how they might want to avoid worse outcomes and ensure better, uh, uh, better outcomes maybe getting a little bit more specific than they did on the Intrepid, where, you, where they have to face the fact that an international crisis is likely uh, the first thing they'll, they'll have to confront as, um, as Commander-in-Chief. But specifically, I would ask, where do you think it would come from? And what would you do now to avoid it? Because these global trends works and global risks work looking f forward aren't supposed to be destiny. They're a trajectory that we can avoid if we take the right policy measures now uh, to get things under control. Uh, of course, part of the problem is what sort of conviction will we go forward in taking care of this uh, in our dem democratic system and values. Writes Matt, quote, polling shows that some are even beginning to doubt the merits of democracy. What appears most in question are Western policies such as humanitarian intervention, regime change, and democracy promotion that are ironically falling out of favor with many publics. I'll let Matt and then the panel get into finer details. However, I do want to highlight that this report is the first volume of the Atlantic Council Strategy Papers box set. Uh, for some of you of a younger generation, box set usually has to do with 78 RPM records, but in this case it will be a digital box set and also a box set in hard copy. Uh, uh, and the, um, the second volume uh, will de define a strategy for the United States to deal with the complexity of today's global context, authored by the director of our strategy initiative, Dan Chu, uh, and released here October 26. So, if this is the world looking forward to uh, 2035, what does that mean for uh, U.S. strategy? And then the third volume will be an edited paper containing long-range visions from both the fiction and non-fiction worlds, really something we've pioneered here working with uh, fiction writers, on how to rearrange government in order uh, to implement a new strategy, and that will come out on December the 6th, edited by Alan Cohn, a senior fellow in the Scowcroft Center. Uh, this box set joins a number of other strategy papers that we've uh, distributed this year. Uh, look to our website uh, for these papers as well as uh, a new strategy initiative website, acstrategy.net. Uh, in addition, I recommend you pick up a, a, a report called A Foundational Proposal 
for the next administration, uh, looking at how to realign and reshape the National Security Council uh, to deal with future challenges. Uh, the lead authors are Ambassadors David Miller and Tom Pickering. And then later this year, we will have regional strategy papers come out as part of this series. Uh, they'll include strategies for Latin America, Africa, East Asia, Europe, Iran, and the Middle East. The Middle East Strategy Task Force paper, co-chaired by Madeleine Albright and Steve Hadley, I think will be one of the highlights of our year here. They consider it one of the toughest jobs they've ever taken on. So we are really trying to help uh, whomever uh, gets elected. We're trying to help whatever administration will come forward. There is purpose to all of this, uh, all of this work. Uh, at the Atlantic Council, we believe we were part, uh, now nearly 60 years ago, uh, of creating the international order that has been in place and has evolved since World War II. Uh, writes Matt, finally, the lack of thinking about an action on repairing the international fabric is itself a concern given the risk of open conflict. And he points to Margaret Macmillan's magisterial work on how World War I came about not inevitable at the time, but there was le little leadership to stop the drift, and that is a potential danger now as well. As Matt writes in closing, it would be a pity if 100 years later we forgot those lessons. So Aaron, uh, a couple of notes before I pass to you. We recorded a three-episode podcast series based on the themes of Matt's work, which is available to download right now on your podcast app called Global Risk 2035. Uh, and then on the uh, AC Scowcroft Medium page, Matt and others have written blog posts going deeper into subjects touched upon by the report. So we're doing a lot of uh, uh, um, more up-to-date approach to this kind of a release. And then our newest website, acstrategy.net, you'll find a digital copy of the report, a video we will momentarily show you, and much more. So it's a one-stop shop for all things strategy initiative and related to the Atlantic Council. Uh, we've had a lot of people help us do this. Uh, Bob Walker, are you in the, uh, somebody told me you're here today. Uh, so Bob Walker, thanks also to Chevron for supporting uh, this, this work on strategy. Um, and we really, uh, we really hope that this will uh, help people think more clearly about the world going forward. Um, we want your opinions and thoughts throughout the day. If you've not done so already, please complete the survey by following the link on uh, uh, the screen. Uh, which screen is it? They'll find the link on Barry. That? Okay. Uh, on what the world should be in 2035. Also, please have your phone ready to text us words uh, that come to mind when listening to today's discussion. We'll see what words come up in a, in a cloud-like way uh, uh, and, and, and then in fact, when you get a chance, I don't think Barry wants you to do this right now, uh, record yourself on your phone giving us your thoughts on what Life 2035 might look like and send it our way using the Twitter hashtag life in 2035. So there's a lot of, lot of action around this. Uh, today's discussion is being webcast live and is on the record. You can follow the online conversation with the Twitter handles at Atlantic Council, at AC Events Live, and at AC Scowcroft. Uh, do use the hashtag life in 2035 and engage with us. That's a lot, Aaron. So I'll turn it over to you now to get us started. And thanks again to the panel. Uh, the floor is yours. 
Uh, okay, well, thank you very much, Fred, for that introduction. And uh, since you went through all of those, I won't spend too much more time, but thank you all for being here. We're very excited about this and excited to dive into your report map. But again, hashtag is life in 2035. The first link up there is for the survey, so start filling that out right away. And of course, the buzzwords, we will go through the word cloud uh, in, in just a few minutes. So as words pop into your head, please do use that link up there. And that one ends in risks 2035. Um, and with that, Matt, if you want to dive into your report. Well, thank you. Um, I wanted to actually, you know, this re report's about world and potentially the world in 2035. I wanted to actually start by going back to the world at the end of the Cold War and really what, what we assumed would be the world today. And I think we had four big assumptions. And the first was increasing economic interdependence would gradually bring down the threat of, of conflict. The second one, this is kind of end of history, that ideology, ideology was dead. The third one was that liberal orders appeal would be universal. So China, Russia, other powers would be gradually integrated into a Western-driven international system. And fourth, that tech was going to be all good. It was going to be beneficial for, for everything that all the problems would be solved by really technological developments. So there's a famous phrase by a British novelist, the past is a foreign country. And I think actually the, the life we're, we're living now and potentially in the future is certainly much different. And, from what we assumed, and that's certainly a lesson for people who do this sort of work, uh, but I think a lesson for us all, thinking that we do have to think beyond our own assumptions. So the report has a big message on conflict, and that is if you're looking back to four years ago when I did the Global Trends 2030, there was still an assumption that major state-on-state -state conflict was highly unlikely. And I think first we have to, to reckon with that it may not be likely yet, but certainly war with between US and Russia, US NATO and Russia, um, US and China, Iran and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states is no longer unthinkable. And that really would be, may be a major change historically, since we haven't really had that and we actually avoided that during the Cold War. The second thing on conflict is that we're now, it's just not state on state or more commonly civil war. So we're having spreading civil war in the Middle East, but we also have to think about non-state actors. And, and increasingly, the technology developments, we've already seen this to limited extent with cyber, but we could see it with other uh, emerging technologies, give them a leg up on the kind of, of damage that they can do. And that's really a, a, a far more of a risk than anybody thought even, I would say, even back to 9-11. 
The second thing um, which I think we certainly did not anticipate was the breakdown domestically in the West. Um, and this, I think they're looking forward, there's those factors that have led to the increasing inequalities, um, the social and political breakdowns, I don't think are going to go away easily. And there are no good, easy solutions. But looking ahead, we have to worry about one thing, with the technology revolution going on, that more and more jobs are going to be displaced, that those inequalities that we've seen already happen can be further um, uh, rooted um, and increased, and that we also have something else that we haven't encountered before that also threatens the, the, the social and political equal, equilibriums. And that really is the aging that is going on. So we've already released a report looking at how basically government revenues are going to have to be poured into pension, social security, Medicare. We've seen in the private sector, you can't read the FT today without seeing a new report about a pensions crisis somewhere, and a severe one at that. So you have potential for more and more government um, money to be invested in really helping seniors really live out a longer and longer time span potentially denying the young and the future of the country the means actually of in terms of education, R&D, and even on the defense side, you could see that being squeezed. Well, that's a huge issue. So introduces a new inequality. Looking ahead, um, yeah, I laid out five uh, or so scenarios. And the first one, I think, is the one that we're presently launched on, and that is the gradual fragmentation. So some would see, certainly, compared to what we thought where, where we would be, it's a pessimistic one. But you could see this as where there isn't major state-on-state -state conflict. We avoid that. But we certainly don't, we don't get out of our funk um, at home, there's still inequality, there's still retrenchment, particularly US, Europe. Um, there's cooperation ad hoc. We've seen like um, the agreement between the US and China on climate change, the P5 plus one agreement on Iran. So there's areas where all the great powers to get together <coughs> and form an agreement where it's mutually beneficial to those powers. But the big things when you're thinking about state failure, conflict in, in the Middle East, those things are not tackled. And on top of that, you have this slow increase in protectionism. So TPP, TTIP don't get passed. So it's not a very, you'd say very nice world, but at least it avoids some of the biggest risks that are laid out. The second one is the more pessimistic, and that's where we slide into a bipolar world in which you have China, Russia on one side, and other powers in the US and Europe. 
and this is back to a Cold War, and inevitably I think you, you do get into a conflict there. I think the key issue there is China. You know, Russia is probably there, but, but China still wants to keep good ties, particularly good economic ties with the, with the West. But say China's economic um, economy flounders, doesn't get through the middle income um, trap, you could see it much more aggressive than it is, and you could see those tensions rise between the U.S. Um, and China. The three, there are three others, I would say kind of subsets, less alternative worlds, but different scenarios on particular issues. One is aging. So do you introduce, as I said, more and more inequality, people, the rich who can afford to actually get more and more, be able to live longer and longer, have better quality lives, others that, that cannot, and an economy that, that um, doesn't find its way to actually compensating for the loss in the labor pool productivity slide, so you have a poor overall even though you have a very, you have this income inequality. A more, much more positive one, looking at the urban areas, you know, middle class is also where the middle class in the emerging world would be. This is where diversity is accepted, embraced. Um, it's where you can have political solutions, um, or practical solutions. I mean, the cities have played this role um, for a long time. This is where kind of the promise that, that we th thought um, uh, came about as a result of globalization would still be, be held up. Um, but obviously other parts of the world not fair as well. And then the final one is obviously a, a good bad one, bad in the sense that you have a lot more terrorism, so you have states that have to band together and you more or less have a marriage convenience. Russia, China also affected with that kind of terrorism. So um, I don't want this all to be doom and gloom, and so I'll, uh, um, I'll end on a very positive note. I mean, I listed all the things that we were deceived in, but the one thing that has surprised us uh, and worked out better, although it was predicted that there would be improvement is that you've really seen um, the middle class grow and that means that you have fewer and fewer poor in the world. And those figures really were quite dramatic. And so this is the irony that as you have more inequality domestically, you have less inequality in the world. And hopefully that middle class um, won't be turned into be frustrated by all these um, bad trends that I've talked about, but also find the solutions. And that's really the, the message here is that we need leadership on a lot of different levels to, to get us out of some of the, um, the bad spots that we're in and maximize those opportunities that do exist. And with that, I'm ending. Okay, thank you. Well, we look forward to diving in in a second. But first, the council took a camera out into Washington and asked a bunch of people on the street what they thought uh, life in 2035 would be like. So we're going to take a look at that video first. I will have my 
survey check-in, do we? Yes, okay. Well, it should pop up on the screen, okay. Okay, well, very good, thank you. Um, so as diving into this, this panel discussion and, and bringing in the ambassador and Sam, um, one of the things that struck me when I first watched that video after looking through Mass Report was just how positive all of those reactions were given, with all due respect, the, the doom and gloom that you laid out. So. I wanted to start by asking each of the panelists to kind of give what is reality versus in between the risks and this very positive outlook that so many people seem to have for 19 years down the road. I didn't get all doom and gloom from the report. And it's incredibly comprehensive and personally really provides, in my opinion, a great analytic frame for thinking about the scenarios that could occur. But I think something that really struck me is the role that individuals uh, at every level can really play in impacting and or influencing which scenario we end up with. Um, particularly as we're in the midst of a, uh, to speak politely, crazy campaign season, and we see the role that our next president could play in, for example, a conflict with Russia or conflict with China, um, and in setting a strategic agenda. It really, in reading it, struck me that both presidents, 
citizens, our children, and uh, everything of that nature can really help determine the trajectory of where we go. So I, I viewed it, I took a positive from that. I also was struck by uh, the discussion on technology. And in preparing for this panel today, I did, after reading Matt's document, did the worst uh, research job ever, and went into Google and Googled what did the world look like in 1996. And aside from the fact that I learned that Tupac Shakur died in 1996, and that Madeleine Albright was appointed as the first female Secretary of State in 1996, the issues in 1996 were so, relatively speaking, different than they are today. And so in reading, going back to Matt's report, it really felt like having this, this structure to think about what kind of the worst case scenarios could be, increased isolation, increased protectionism, um, the potential for great power conflict and a return to kind of this Cold War era balance between great powers, or tenuous balance, I should say. I, I feel positive after reading it because there are things that we can do to determine where we end up. So I don't know if you had a similar reaction or not. Certainly, as I thought about this, I, I ended up with Matt's last comment that leadership at all levels, which is a theme you picked up, is very important. What's pretty clear from this report is that the level of complexity of life is going to continue to accelerate. And if you look at the changes from the 80s and 90s to today, the complexity of our daily lives, but of decision-making trees for all sorts of people, including our leaders, is, is gotten more and more complex, and that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. So that puts a premium on finding the best ways we can to have people who think broadly, who think creatively, who keep learning as they age. And there are we know that that can be done. It also means building into institutions the capacity to develop leaders, develop knowledge, adapt as you're working your way through the series of challenges and crises we're going to have. The most interesting, what I found the most interesting chart in this, there's a chart about the introduction of technology. And it sort of goes along throughout history and then, boom, shoots up. And that is, is something that is unpredictable. And we have to, in the sense that the consequences are not clear. And, and Matt's study points out they're good consequences and they're bad consequences we're going to have to develop that capacity, at least for a cadre of people, to be able to respond quickly, thoughtfully to the unexpected, both in technology, but then also in politics in the world. I could just add one thing. I mean, many of us have worked in government. Um, Ambassador Wayne has had such an incredible career. I think that it's incumbent upon whomever is in the next administration at every level to try to balance the strategic with the tactical. And I think that's a challenge when you're a policymaker because there is an endless stream of uh, tactical events that occur, everything from a terrorist attack to uh, a cyber attack of any nature. But there's also a strategic agenda that our next commander in chief and in other countries needs to pursue. So under Obama, that was something like climate change that he felt very strongly he needed to focus on while we were dealing with tactical disruptors on a daily basis. And that's a hard thing to do. And I think that it takes at all levels, leaders uh, in various institutions around the world, setting aside time to think strategically, whether it's at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, if you're a morning person or an evening person. Because if you don't, you, you risk 
diverging from that strategic agenda and letting some of the scenarios that Matt uh, references in his report become realities, not by accident, but because you didn't make the time to think about them strategically. And that's, it's a hard lesson to learn, but I think an important one. I don't know yeah, no, if I you agree. I agree completely. One of the notes I wrote down was that you have to build strategic planning into the day-to-day -day thinking. And if you think back over the administrations in the United States, it's hard to find a good example of that being done effectively. We've created policy planning offices, we write these strategies, um, and we do that in the various departments, we do it at the White House, but making that longer-term thinking part of our short-term day-to-day work is something that's going to be even more important in the world that Matt has described. If we can talk a little bit, four years ago you wrote the precursor to this, and as we were talking about this morning, things have changed dramatically in the four years since you wrote the last report. I'm wondering if you specifically, but if each of you could diagnose exactly what made things change so dramatically to send us down sort of a different trajectory. Well, you know, I, I think the big thing is Russia's annexation of Crimea was a huge, it would be, you know, the Russian opposition uh, had been simmering along, but I mean, that was a huge wake-up call in some ways. And I think the other thing, and again, you could talk about, you know, it's a longer term, is the growing inequality in the U.S., which I think is... You know, we really have to worry about, as I said earlier, I think can, can be compounded by also what is going to occur with aging. Um, and that where you have a millennial generation, and there are a lot of studies on this, are really not um, getting the opportunities. They're not accumulating the wealth. They don't have the income. They're not, um, they feel very frustrated. All these studies in there in their career, they don't feel they have the opportunities, and then you have a lot of you know, surveys showing that they really don't think they're going to accomplish as much as they had hoped, but also what their parents had uh, been able to achieve. Um, so those are, those are things that were existing before, and we actually talked about it in the previous, but I think have somehow crystallized um, in part because of events, I think you know the Crimea thing is very important, but also because of accumulating um, from the 2008 financial crisis, feeling that um, they, a lot of society really lost out there and they haven't been able to recover. I agree with everything Matt said, unsurprisingly. Uh, I think I would add, thinking about 2012, a lot of the issues that actually are uh, first and foremost on the foreign policy agenda, which is uh, what I typically uh, enjoy speaking about, are somewhat similar, in fact. I mean, in 2012, we had the crisis in Syria beginning. We had ongoing tensions in Iraq and around the Middle East. And the deteriorating relationship between the United States and Russia was already uh, picking up a significant degree of momentum. And unfortunately, those negative trends and those downside risks have only accelerated. Um, and we can discuss the reasons why, perhaps, but um, I try to always think about what we can do to prevent them from going further and coming out of, I, met, I know many of us were at the UN General Assembly this week up in, in New York, very, very busy week, very interesting conversations, but on the trade ride down here, uh, when I was looking over the report again, I was thinking, gosh, I hope in four years when we do this again, we are remarking on the fact that our institutions have become more flexible and adaptive to meet 
the requirements that are in front of us on the foreign policy and national security stage. And I think uh, our, we had our 71st UN General Assembly, uh, it's still ongoing, the 72nd or 75th, I guess it will be in uh, four years, that we're remarking on the restructuring of the UN, the restructuring of multilateral development banks and uh, other such entities so that we can respond more quickly. The Russia question, we can go into more detail if anyone likes, but that's, that's a thorny one. And that's one where the role of individual leadership, which Ambassador Wayne mentioned, is critical. Uh, you know, Putin is, uh, has a, a, an interesting background, interesting mindset, and he sing, sees things in very black and white Cold War terms. I don't know that that will ever change, but uh, I think that we need to think about what tools we have to influence uh, the direction that Russia goes in. And that's, that's a very difficult question. I, I don't have the answers to that, but I would imagine that if we don't think about that very carefully, in four years, the kind of new Cold War era system will be closer to a reality. Mm -hmm. The other change that's taken place is the way that people are thinking around the world. There is more nationalism, more protectionism, more extremist views about religion. And you can see that in practically every uh, region in the world. And I think we're trying to work through how to deal with that. Clearly, we're debating it a lot at home these days. Um, but I think the international community is trying to work through what do you do in the face of the, these new mo modes of thought. And they interact in, in all sorts of, of different ways, and that adds to the complexity of, of what we're doing. One of the things we can start doing now is, is keep investing in and perfecting the tools that we have to act internationally. We, If you think about we've learned through what's been called the long war. There are a lot of lessons that have come out of that about um, how we can project ourselves in various places around the world. We've got to get smarter in doing that. We're going to have to add science and technology into that whole process. Climate change is a, a perfect example. And we have to be better institutionally in doing that. There are a number of changes. My background is in the Foreign Service that we need to make to develop better diplomats. But the same is true in the Defense Department, in the Treasury Department, in USAID. The demands are just going to be much greater. We can start preparing and building that capacity now um, if we're smart. I just thought of one other thing I would add, and that is, and I, I'm mentioning this because I see a former colleague of mine in the room, but the way that we get our information has changed in the last four years. Obviously, th this had started well before 2012, but I know that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is check my Twitter feed, which was not my primary way of receiving information four years ago and certainly not 10 years ago. And so whether it be in the Situation Room at the White House or all of us on our smartphones in the morning, I think that that's really changed how we get information, how we internalize information, and perhaps both a positive and, neg and a negative how we think strategically about where things are going because getting constant updates on from myriad media sources on Twitter is very useful but is not necessarily the way to develop a strategic outlook, whether it be in policy making or in finance or in whatever industry you're involved in. And so I actually wonder what the next four years will bring in terms of information gathering and information analysis. Mm -hmm. If we can drill down a little bit further into some of the more specific global risks, I'd like each of you to say what you think is the 
primary global risk and how the Foreign Service community and others should begin to address it? If, if we were to strategically pick what is the biggest threat and, and how do you move forward, what would that be? Well, the biggest is <coughs> conflict. I mean, because we know historically that, you know, conflict ended globalization at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, we know what it's doing in, in, in a place like uh, uh, the Middle East. We know when conflicts begin, they're very hard to end. Um, so obviously preventing that, um, first at the higher level, I mean, is, is, is a real uh, imperative. Um, after that, I mean, there, uh, the, the problem is that there are quite a few other risks that you can't just stop with that. But you've given me one. Yes, so. I have, yes. <laughs> I'm going to answer your question a bit of a different way, but a few weeks ago I wrote a piece uh, with Mike Morell from the CIA and Sandy Winnefeld from the Joint Staff on exactly this question on risks, because I think it's a more complex question. I think that we have to prioritize and tier the risks to national security uh, in this country. So there are, you can think about it in terms of existential risks to the continued existence of the United States. You can think about it in terms of risks to U.S. values. Uh, and so if you're going to ask about existential risks, anything that could actually threaten the, uh, the country's uh, continuance, I think that it, we'd have to go back to uh, the risk of nuclear war um, and go to who the nuclear armed states are. Uh, I think that that's one. And one that uh, gets a lot of attention sometimes, but not at the right times, particularly in today's fraught bipartisan environment, but a superbug. So we talk about, you know, armed conflict quite often, obviously, are very focused on the risk of terrorist attacks and extremism. But uh, a superbug like Zika 2.0 could theoretically destroy the country. And so you do that, and then you get down to the risk of perhaps great power uh, conflict, whether it be between the US and Russia, if Russia were to launch a series of closely timed uh, periodic nuclear attacks on the homeland, that would be an existential risk. Vis-a-vis um, -vis China, I think that there's a great risk for miscalculation and miscommunication. And in the administration, we spent a lot of time trying to, even if we didn't agree, let the Chinese government know what was really a no-go zone and to be very clear about where we were coming from, whether it be on um, cyber espionage or the South China Sea or East China Sea, just so that there, was, there were fewer gray zones. Um, and so uh, that's a bit of a more complex answer to your question. I can't just name one because I think that whomever is the next commander-in-chief um, has to very carefully think about that tier. Otherwise, you risk getting distracted. In a related answer, I think managing complexity is the big challenge for leaders all around the world, especially in the United States. We have to sort out from all this information what are the priority, mm -hmm. then what are the options for dealing with that. Then we have to have the ability to manage well relations with others, and that includes our rivals, but also the, those who could be in our coalitions. And I, I believe we're going to get into even more of these alternating coalitions on different issues. And then we need the tools to work in ungoverned spaces or poorly governed spaces and know how we can deploy those carefully. We're seeing the dangers these days of you call it the fog of war or the unexpected, and that's only going to multiply as there are multiple crises that we will likely have a role in. 
Before we open it up to the audience, I do think we want to check in on the word cloud. So I believe we're about to generate that. So I hope you all have put in the words that have popped into your head. And if you haven't just yet, do that right now. And oh, we do have it. OK. Uh, yeah, so climate change is, is the biggest one. Education, of course. Youth bulge. What do you think of that one? I, I think that you know, climate change is something we haven't talked on the panel here. Um, in the in the publication, it looks particularly at its impact in poor areas because I think that is, you know, climate change is going to affect us all, but many of us have more ability to mitigate, adapt, um, make those changes. But there are areas, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, uh, Middle East, that really don't have that means. And that, you know, getting back again to point on instability, that's going to be a continuing source of instability. So you how prevent it. Youth bulges, I actually think, you know, there are certain areas, there are about 28 countries that we follow that are going to still have youth bulges. And unfortunately, you know, there's a long-term worry in that if you don't get birth rates down in places like West Africa, then you get a world of 12 billion by the end of the century, which is probably going to be unsustainable. Um, but in the meantime, if you're looking in this about 35 years, the really the bigger threat I think for is on the aging side, because we just which don't. Which is what know. you put in the report. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, I, climate change actually came up in the video quite a bit as well. Um, so I, I find that interesting that that's what everyone glommed onto there as well. One of the things we haven't yet talked about is intra-domestic issues. It's pretty clear from Matt's report that what's happening internally is going to be very related to what's happening externally. And we have to be smarter, I think, in managing that those kind of cross-cutting issues. There are a number of things that the next administration can develop long-term policies in that will affect that. Education is one of them. Um, investing in education in different ways. Worker retraining and support as the technology takes people out of their current jobs at all levels, not just blue-collar, white-collar as well. Um, innovation, in long-term infrastructure investment. A lot of things that we can do domestically will make us stronger domestically, but will also help us in dealing with the international challenges that are coming up. And again, that's part of seeing the whole and dealing with that complexity with a longer term vision. And so I do think there's a lot that the United States can do investing in these kind of longer term visions and policies to help us deal with the world that Matt's talking about. And I think a lot of the things that Ambassador Wayne mentioned, particularly climate change, but these are areas where we need real, actionable public-private partnerships. These are no longer areas that governments or the private sector can, uh, can attack by themselves. And climate change is a great example. And I think uh, in Paris and elsewhere, we've seen companies coming in, uh, offering feedback, and then developing new technologies to meet the various challenges of climate change. And that has to continue, and in my opinion, that, that needs to accelerate very, very quickly. Um, and so that's one area where technology can be, I think, a source for good. Um, particularly, and this is a challenge, but using that technology and forming these public-private partnerships, as Matt said, in 
least developed areas because you know if you're in Silicon Valley and make the median income in the United States, you have more access to it than in sub-Saharan Africa or areas that are more prone to the extreme weather patterns that are caused by climate change. Um, and on the education, on the infrastructure side, I think you know technology you mentioned in your, your report can be a major, I think, uh, short-term labor uh, disruptor. Over the long term, I think our labor markets adjust. I don't know if you would agree. But as companies, as private companies, I think we can help speak with policymakers uh, and labor strategists about where the new uh, skills needs and jobs needs may be so that there is this kind of back and forth interactive discussion so that we give our, our, our children and our workforce the skills they need to compete uh, globally. And so I think that you know, in January 26, uh, 2017 and going forward from the private sector, uh, for those of us that remain, remain there, we really need to emphasize that discussion and whomever the next president will be, uh, hopefully will be very open to facilitating that. And I think, I think that'll be the case. Great. Okay, uh, we'd like to move it to the audience. You were first, so please go ahead. Oh, yes, of course. I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Matt, you and Fred should be congratulated for this and subsequent efforts. Thank you very much. Let me preface my question with an observation. If you go back and look at the New York Herald in 1880, the headline read, New York City doomed by horse pollution because there were as many people as there were horses in New York, how you fed them and dealt with the exhaust problem was a real issue. <laughs> Along came Henry Ford. I'm not talking about a technological solution, but I am saying that things change dramatically. Uh, I would argue that two of the greatest risks and threats are first, failed and failing government, and second, I think you understate the problem of climate change. Uh, regarding failed and failing government, Take a look at Iraq, take a look at Afghanistan, on and on and on and on. But take a look at America. We can't deal with entitlements. Congress overrides the President's veto on the Saudi suit bill. We're going to have a catastrophe there. So I think failed and failing governments are going to be something that's going to be one of the biggest dangers or realities we have to deal with. And about climate change, right now, if predictions hold forth, and I go back to horse pollution, maybe they don't, Norfolk, Virginia is going to be underwater by 2035. So I would just like to know why we have not focused more on failed governments and on the climate change issue, because I think those are two of the greatest drivers. And if you ask John Kerry the biggest threat to mankind, John will say directly, it's climate change. I, you know, as I said, I think climate change, the biggest threat is in developing world. I actually think you're going to see that's where technology is going to play a big part. And we have the means, you know, other rich countries, China, elsewhere, are investing in it, have the means. And obviously it, it hits. I mean, you know, I'm very well aware I was down in Hampton Roads. We were talking on this issue. But I think actually you'll see that municipality actually is thinking about um, different ways to prevent the constant uh, flooding and the potential for huge water surges. So I'm actually a little bit more optimistic there because I think um, because maybe the federal government can't get its act together, but you are seeing states and you're seeing municipalities. Um, I would totally agree on, you know, state failure. I mean, I think that is a worry for me in the Middle East that maybe you can 
get a ceasefire in some places over time, Syria, Iraq, but can you actually put the country back together? And I just don't see that happening. So it's always a source of potential instability. I think we've all, you know, three of us here have all had government backgrounds. So I mean, the message, yes, is that we need to get our act together. And we haven't gotten our act together, even though we've known about a lot of these long-range trends. I think that gets harder and harder uh, because of this bipartisan uh, and really an entrenched, you could say, a 40% that don't feel that they are getting the, uh, the benefits that they should, that they're being left behind. And that has to change in some way. My name is Philip Stevens from the Financial Times. Um, I just wonder if I could take you back to the sort of geopolitical uh, terrain. Um, if it's fair to say, and I think you're right, that the existing rules-based multilateral order is breaking down and it's being replaced by something that's more transparently power-based, sphere of influence-based, um, does that necessarily lead to conflict um, we saw in the 19th century uh, the concert of Europe structure. Uh, we've seen Xi Jinping suggesting sort of shared responsibility for the Pacific. Uh, what Russia's pushing for is back to spheres of influence. Now, that if you were, if you're a liberal internationalist, that feels very uncomfortable. But it was actually stable for 75 years or so. I don't think you know as I. I have the first scenario, which is kind of the, the base scenario in which you have the fragmentation without the major conflict. I don't, I don't think it's inevitable, but I do think that that fragmentation scenario is very unstable. And what I particularly worry about is that, and that happened at the end of the 19th century, is that you have a rising China, and a China that feels that it was unjustly dealt with um, you know, the century of, of humiliation. Um, in a little bit, the, the way Germany felt that it was also left out. And um, there is a study that Graham Allison is doing at Harvard looking at these historic transition points. And two out of 13, I think, are peaceful. Obviously, the one between Britain and the US being the, being the exemplar. Of the, um, so that would be, you know, I think you're right that it isn't inevitable, but I would worry that because of you, you do have that potential there for, for um, rivalry uh, to get out of hand within that non-rules-based system where it's very much of, um, based upon power that, that you could have a struggle that sends you into really the second scenario here. Uh, Jerry Glenn with the Millennium Project. A couple of years ago, there was a report called Anticipatory Governance. Mm -hmm. You may remember by Leon Firth that talked about your first recommendation here about integrating strategic foresight in decision making, especially the White House. The report, as you may remember, did not assume congressional funds or congressional authority change. It was, as best I can tell, totally ignored. And for the 40 or odd years I've looked at this question, I have seen every 10 years some new report or so. This is the best one, and I am sad that it has been ignored. I'm 
happy that you've got it as your number one suggestion. So I'd like to talk about implementation. How do you actually get that done? I mean, I'll, I'll say something, but I think, you know, these two also have been working in government and can also maybe have a solution. I totally agree. I think that Leon first work there really uh, is unrivaled. I mean, it is the best solution out there on, on trying to put much more strategic foresight into the decision-making process. Um, I unfortunately, I mean, he worked to get the um, first Obama administration to accept it. Um, it is, I think it always presents certain problems because a lot of the people in place at the time look on having somebody sit with them thinking about the long term and objecting to immediate solutions is potentially creating problems down the, as a, a huge bureaucratic complication. And um, so I think what we need to do is get the next president very early in her administration to actually put in place what is what he is recommending. Because I think midway it is too difficult. Um, and that is really going to be the key that, and maybe, you know, um, Secretary Clinton was the one who, and Tony can talk about this, instituted the QDDR at the State Department. So I think has some idea, yes, that there is a need for strategic um, thinking. Just to add a little bit on that, there have been good examples in various departments where people have tried to do that. But the basic dynamic has been the one that Matt mentioned, is that the focus is on the near term. And those arguing the near term crises don't appreciate someone that they're arguing the long term. Or they co-opt that person and they start focusing on the short term and forget their role. Um, the QDDR in the State Department is an effort to bring that strategic planning there. DOD has had this for a number of years. The problem is, does it get forgotten or does it get implemented once it's done? It will take uh, serious direction from a president from the start, I agree, as, as was said, to put this in place and make it work. It's going to have to take a real commitment to make it work. There are instances, if you look back at over the history of all the national security advisors and administrations where there have been certain individuals who have been sort of the big thinker and they get called in at certain times to talk about it, but it has never been institutionalized. That's what needs to happen. The only thing that I would add to that is I think it takes discipline. I think that whether you're leading the NSC or you're the commander in chief or you're a member of Congress or you're leading a company, going back to my earlier point, I think everybody wants to think strategically and wants to take these kind of uh, strategic long-term views. I just think that there's a lot of other things that go on. And so from where I came from at the NSC, it was you know putting a weekly meeting with our, I think it was the Directorate of Strategic Planning on the calendar. So no matter what else was going on in the world, you had that time set aside. Uh, President Obama did that as well on a periodic basis. And I think that the policy planning staff, and I'm no expert on the State Department, but the policy planning staff at the State Department has been used in different ways in different times. 
we have uh, Jake Sullivan now as uh, Secretary Clinton's you know, chief policy advisor on the campaign. That's where he comes from. Secretary Kerry, uh, from what I understand, is using his policy pl planning staff very heavily. But then you have all this other stuff that goes on. So I think it just takes discipline to think strategically. And these, the report that you mentioned needs to be digested, circulated, and uh, discussed regularly. Hopefully there'll be more, and there'll be reports like this that make it onto the desks of both presidential candidates because, and I don't want to get, I don't think we're here for a political discussion, but I don't think that you make uh, statements about Russia or the Ukraine as lightly as some one of the candidates is doing without understanding the strategic outlook. So I think that if you understand the risk for great power conflict or miscalculation, you think very carefully about who you antagonize, even if it's just for campaign purposes. We have some eager questioners um, on this side, so if we can come back down and go to you. Hi, I'm Albert Keitel, non-resident senior fellow of the Atlantic Council, and I was formerly the manager of the Office of East Asian Nations in the Treasury Department. Matt, congratulations on this. I want to ask a question about your choice in sort of economic uh, analysis. You, you focus heavily on demographic change, uh, and uh, it seems to me that there's an underemphasis on the role of the... Boy, this is not working very well. On the role of the financial crisis in polarizing many aspects of uh, global activity, and so I wonder it, you there's been kind of a failure in demand, and you have a statement here about how there's the, there's a much better record of overall growth in the United States since 2008, when in fact it's really been anemic. Uh, there has been a, a stymie in the Congress blocking um, a lot of infrastructure investment and, th and the kind of demand, counter-cyclical demand that we need to get the, the U.S. economy going and the global economy going. And so the notion that investment in technical change is the way to go forward as opposed to uh, really managing aggregate demand, which has been done so poorly uh, in the recent decade. Uh, why did you make that choice of sort of where, where the economic options are? Well, one, you know, I, I would totally agree that, and I thought I connected it in the report that you really have this issue of the anemic um, global and also you could say U.S. economic growth. But there is a demographic dimension to it that is talked about in the report. I mean, the U.S. has a labor participation rate problem, and it actually cropped up after the um, 2008 financial crisis, where you go from 68% of the um, uh, working age adults down to 62, and we can't seem to even with full employment raise that up. Um, Compared to the share of investment. Yeah. Compared to China, Japan, Korea. So the share yeah. of investment induces technical change. And, uh, and without it, you do get this decline in employment uh, shares and so forth. But, you know, looking forward, you know, this is part of the worry on the aging uh, society is that you don't get that, um, you know, the investment is, is in health services, pensions, and others that you can't provide that, um, you know, to the, really the, the source of, of what you could say would be ongoing economic growth. Thank you. Joe Schneider. I'm a consultant. Uh, 
And uh, my, my question is, uh, it seems to me that most of the discussion here and throughout the uh, policy environment is about specific uh, issues or tactics like democracy uh, and the sum of all these activities are then categorized as strategy and most of the documents that you see out of think tanks and the government is a smorgasbord of things that we have to do with very little prioritization and the sum of it is, is considered a strategy and often all that is trumped by crisis management. Uh, are there any overall principles or activities that should be or are taken into consideration. And let me just give an example uh, for comment. When the uh, Arab Spring happened, there was a knee-jerk euphoria about how great this was. And you know, it was you know, widely supported by our political establishment. If our strategic objective as a country were to have a world that is stable and where development occurs, you know, and if we look at countries like Korea or Taiwan or Singapore that had tremendous development and evolution into democracy, as opposed to democracy, where there is no example of democracy led to prosperity. There's plenty of example of prosperity leads to democracy. So, so if we had a, a more comprehensive view of what we should do, uh, wouldn't that be a better dialogue to have and then all these uh, uh, issues that we have to deal with or tactics that we have to deal with can then be adjusted to achieve our strategic objectives. Well, stay tuned. I mean, th this is a global risk document. As Fred was saying at the very beginning, I mean, there's then a strategy document um, that will come later. So, you know, this is setting the, the basis for thinking about what your, your strategy is. Um, you know, I'll throw my two cents in so we can, about what I think, you know, the, the issue will be on strategy is can the U.S. do what, you know, a lot of its partners expected to, to be able to do, continue to be this, this big global power that, that solves everybody's problems? Um, I'm not so sure. You know, I think some of this is that you know, you may have to repair the, the domestic fabric and that may have to be more of a priority. So I would say that there are huge, you know, obviously here there's a panoply of different risks that a strategy has to deal with. And we've had some questions on, you know, prioritizing, the, but also in the strategy of what are the means and what are the resources that you have. And unfortunately, there's a mixed mass match at the moment, that we got a lot more risk than we do actually, even if you include, you know, the traditional West collectively that we have the resources to deal with. Let's go to you. Hi, I'm Deborah Decker with the Stimson Center Senior Advisor. I come from the private sector and I was a manager of planning for Europe for a major bank and I joined the public sector to, to try to help with strategic planning. and. It, understand your frustrations because we're just not institutionally set up for it the way we are in the private sector where we try to maximize shareholder value traditionally. And, and, and when we talk about strategy in the 
public sector, we have to say strategy for what? What are the shareholder values that we're trying to maximize? Danny Roderick of Harvard had an interesting piece in this weekend, I think it was the New York Times, talking about globalization and globalization as a, as a tool for what we want to achieve. So thinking back to maybe what this last gentleman was questioning about you know, what are we trying to achieve? And I think that larger discussion is something that's been played out to some extent in, in this year's election because we are just not all together on that. But could you discuss your risks in terms of risk of what? I mean, it's, you know, yes, we don't want to have the U.S. fall apart, but it has to be something more aspirational. Well, there is a risk of, you know, globalization falling apart in, in this. So that would be, you know, I, I think of risks of, of a, you set these out and think about them and then figure out ways of preventing some of the, in, in the same way that you would in your personal life of, you know, the risk of you dying early, the risk of your house burning down. I mean, that you think about, you know, what kind of insurance, what kind of savings that you need. And that, um, that to me is the, the, the first part of it. Then maybe is the second, the aspirational, um, you know, can, you know, there's a big question here, I think that we're all posing is, can you actually reestablish a liberal order? You know, if you look at the, uh, you know, mission statement, of the Atlantic Council it talks about th that very fact. Um, I think that may be a little bit far. Actually, I think you know what we may have to uh, to settle for is one in which we don't have major conflicts. We deal with some of these big risk, but it's not necessarily a perfect world, but we realize that we don't have the resources necessarily to, to make it into the perfect world. I, I might just add that when you're crafting a national policy, it's not the same thing as doing, as you well know, because you've tried them both, a corporate policy, even for a large multinational. We're trying to mix together in the public sector Power, peace, prosperity, and principle. <laughs> and that goes back to the Arab Spring, principle. Okay, And those interact in different ways on different decisions. You certainly can craft a strategy, but it can no longer be an international strategy in and of itself. It has to be a domestic and international strategy that reinforces each other. As Matt has pointed out very well, funding the tools you may need to act internationally may not be consistent with keeping your population satisfied with the benefits they are getting from the government. So you have to choose in some way between how you're going to allocate your resources. And that makes it really tough to do. But you can do it. You can lay them all out, as Matt said. Then you can decide, OK, what are the priorities? And, and we have been doing it to some extent, not to some extent, a lot up until now. But it's going to be even more difficult in the world that Matt has put out there before us. And I tend to agree that we're going to see even more of these coalitions built on different issues internationally around the world as we try to cope with the different problems that come up. I think we have time for about two more questions. In the back. I will preface my question with a question. I'm Anita Minghetti with USAID. Is this op attribution or Chatham House rules? On the record. On the record. OK. Um, then I'll be more careful in my word choice. Um, <laughs> They're the words. 
<laughs> Considering that there is always an inherent pressure as a US government employee between what might be the strategic and wonderful thing to do and what your boss needs yesterday, um, what, what advice might you give someone tasked with writing a paper for the transition which is upon us, looking at what are some of the ways that a agency tasked with international development might take on strategically in any sense to deal with the fact that the world as we know it seems to be constantly in crisis? If I could take a first cut at that. You know, I, and we were discussing this before we started. I wonder when people have said the world is not in crisis. I think that it's a relative, a relative term, and that's in no way to diminish the severity of it, perhaps right after World War II, perhaps. But there are always crises, and there are always transition. It's, it's a question of scope and severity. Um, I'm not a member of the transition team. My former boss, Tom Donilon, is co-chairing it. But I think that um, it would be incumbent upon whomever is writing that paper to get back to something that we discussed earlier, which is balancing the strategic with the tactical, particularly on the development side. I am sure that you and your colleagues are faced with near-term crises, whether it be an earthquake or a tsunami or a migrant crisis from Central America or something of that nature, alongside your longer strategic development goals. And so as that paper is being written, I would, I would hope that there was, again, that balance of the, and that prioritization put in there as well as a focus on uh, working with the private sector wherever the private sector does have some kind of a competitive advantage, whether it be on climate change or something of that nature. I, crises that we actually, the crises to which USAID responds, the earthquakes, the things that take six weeks to two years are very minimal and now we're responding to Syria's and Iraq's for 10, 12 years. So it sort of blurs the line between immediate and long-term. Thanks. It, so it does, and so one of the things we have to be really frank with ourselves about and whatever you write for any bosses is what you can do well and what you can't do well. And we've got plenty of lessons from the past two decades in that from USAID, from DOD, from others, there are some things that came out pretty well. We learned, we ad adapted. There are other things where we just ended up wasting time and effort and didn't help the country. And so the, the best thing you can do for the new administration is be honest and say, look, we do this really well. We do this sort of OK, and this we're really bad at. You may need it done, but just know we've got to get a lot better if we're going to have those results. A and that will be really helpful for policymakers. Okay, one more question. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, Robert Charetta, President of International Investor. We, we've struggled with these issues for a long time, too. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the notion that we all need a little humility here. And when it comes to predicting any of this, uh, there's case after case uh, and examples where we've been all proven wrong. But 18 years is not so far from now. And I would, I would just offer the uh, proposition. We try to look at the world in terms of where are shortages arising, where do we have an overabundance. There's only one thing I, we see uh, on each of those measures that makes a big difference here and that we think will sweep aside all these other efforts to predict the future. People keep being added to the world 
And despite all those who say that we're seeing a plateauing in population, we would argue with what we're seeing in China and elsewhere, the opposite is going to be true. That means more consumption and a greater strain on all the world's resources. The one thing that we see that's going to be in a vast shortage, and technology is part of the reason why, you've already mentioned it, are jobs. We look at what, and, and the one thing I'm surprised you don't see in your report is anything about human migrations, because we think that problem has just begun. I'll be short here. For, in one big Pew study of about 50,000 citizens worldwide, they said 14% of the world is thinking about leaving their nation for one reason or another. I think we're gonna see a big wave of human migration from one part of the world to another. So, you know, a lot of this is, is a great effort to try to, to try to imagine what's going to happen, but clearly these are the bigger pressures that I think are going to come to bear. Uh, there is a section on migration. In the, we, we haven't, you know, covered it. I would agree um, that, you know, those pressures are, are going to be there. I mean, we've seen it in the case of Europe, even though you have the, the exodus from Syria is down, you actually have this steady um, African, which is very disturbing because one thing, you know, there's a lot more <laughs> that can follow this, but you have also, when we're talking about climate change, you have real climate change problems in, in that part of the Sahel and even below it, the Sahel. Um, I think, you know, my overall take, again, I'm a little bit more optimistic um, on this, uh, and this is not popular to say, I've said it in Germany, uh, that the infusion of new populations um, into countries, because a lot of these people coming from Africa, the ones that came from Syria, are middle class, they're fairly well educated, and if you look at Germany's demographic profile, they have actually been able to integrate Bosnians, Turks, um, Kurds into their population. And so uh, when you're looking at the aging problem at one end and you're looking at all the economic issues, migration's not going to solve all of that, but it is going to mitigate some of it. We ourselves, you know, we pride ourselves that we don't have the demographic profile that um, Europe does or Japan does, but that's largely because we have had a huge amount of, of immigration happening in the 1990s, coming from, up from, uh, from the south. So, you know, in the short term, these are always going to be destabilizing, um, but um, on this issue, I'm a little bit more of the optimist than, um, than the pessimist, and I think over time, you know, we learn to embrace diversity. Um, when you think of this country, but Europeans who don't actually think of their countries as, as um, immigrant societies, a lot of them actually are. Okay, um, that will have to be the last word, so thank you and congratulations. Uh, you all should have a copy, and if you don't, there, I believe there are more outside, and of course continue to add your thoughts on social media with the Life in 30, 2035 hashtag. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at AtlanticCouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.